for the adventure? I hope so. It's exciting. want to welcome those that are joining us over at Westside Campus. Thank you for being there, as well as those that are joining us online today. We appreciate you inviting us into your home or wherever you're watching. And so glad to see everybody here. It's good to be back in the saddle again, but i got to warn you, I've been saving up my words, and so i got a lot of extra words today to say so we could be here for a while uh, this morning, because today I get to kick off our new series called Holy Heroes. I found a definition of heroes that I like. A hero is a person who, in the opinion of others, has special achievements, abilities, or personal qualities and is regarded as a role model or an ideal. Well, the Bible is filled with the stories of so many people who provide exemplary examples that we can learn from. Uh, We just spent six weeks studying the life of Joseph, who lived an amazing life, was used by God in some amazing ways. And in this sermon series, each week, we're going to be exploring the life of one of six Bible characters with the goal of being able to learn some valuable lessons from their experiences that you and I can apply to our own faith journeys. Before we dive in, though, I thought it might be helpful uh, to clarify what a holy hero is not and identify that. And so first of all, a holy hero isn't someone who never fails or makes a mistake. Every single one of the folks whose stories we're going to examine were imperfect people, and they lived in the same imperfect world that we live in, which means they didn't do everything perfectly or without fail. Secondly, they're also not someone whose life experiences we can emulate or even replicate. I mean, think about it. How many burning bush experiences do we read about in the Bible? Only one. Uh, How many slingshot slain giants, that's a tongue twister by the way, uh, do we see in the Bible? Only one. Or how about fish ingested prophets? Thank goodness only one. I don't ever want to hear that story again. Uh, Maybe you might have noticed if you looked at the sermon notes today some irregularity in those notes uh, because I rarely include that much verbiage. There's a lot of words in there in the notes, but I'd like to encourage you to keep that little piece of paper or if you have it electronically, keep that handy somewhere with you uh, because I'd like to encourage you to read through it at least once or twice a week throughout this series. And It's written in the first person and it provides for us what I would call our holy hero's perspective. Let's read it together. So sometimes I have a tendency to come at scripture with rose-colored lenses, viewing the people that God used significantly as if they were these amazing, gifted, remarkable, extraordinary people. I forget that they had to live the spiritual life just as I do. None of the people God used in the Bible were perfect. Some even came from sordid backgrounds, and many exhibited certain limitations. Some were initially weak in their faith and lacking in the necessary skill sets. But despite of all this, God used them in some significant ways. It's important to understand this, because I often think that God can't use me in the same way he used so many of these people. And that just simply isn't true. I compare myself to a false standard by not looking at these people for who they really were. They were just ordinary people who allowed an extraordinary God to lead their lives, often putting his priorities ahead of their own and choosing to serve the greater purpose. And their accomplishments, triumphs, as well as defeats have been preserved for me to inspire and instruct 
so that God's destiny for my life might be fulfilled, however inconspicuous and humble it may be. And that might be where you're sitting right there today. You think, my life's kind of inconspicuous. I'm not important at all. Uh, you don't just feel like a small fish in a big pond. You might feel like a tiny fish in a huge ocean in this world we live. And yet every one of us here, every one of us here is a link in God's plan for his world, no matter how small or insignificant it might seem. And so let's talk about now what a holy hero is. And first of all, a holy hero is someone who overcame some challenging circumstances without compromising their faith or their values. And you know, the challenges that you and I face in life uh, don't really make us who we are as much as they reveal who we already are, as well as who we're going to likely become based on how we respond to them. And each one of the folks that we'll be looking at are heroes because of the ways that they chose to respond. And secondly, a holy hero is someone whose unique interaction with God allowed them to be used by God for a unique purpose. Now, several months ago, I asked for some suggestions as to who we should cover in this series, and I received several dozen excellent suggestions. There are so many intriguing and interesting Bible characters that were suggested. But I had to narrow it down to just six. And so after some prayerful thought, I selected six holy heroes, three women and three men that we're gonna look at over the next six weeks. Starting today with Esther, a woman whose story begins as an orphaned nobody only to become a courageous queen of the greatest empire of her time who chose to step up and step in at a risk of her own life in order to save her fellow citizens from annihilation. And then next week, we're gonna take a look at Timothy, an empowered young leader from a mixed race marriage who became a devoted follower of Christ and after spending a couple of years being mentored by the Apostle Paul, was used by God to faithfully lead the church during its new beginnings uh, in the first century. And then we're gonna take a look at a guy by the name of James. And it's not James, the brother of John, but actually James who became a very influential brother, half-brother of Jesus, and I think overcame his over-familiarity with his older brother. I mean, to grow up with Jesus and say, this is God's son, uh, that, that's an incredible thing. And he became a leading voice uh, in the early church. And then we're gonna take a look at Deborah, a valiant judge who bucked the man-centered culture she lived in and served as an effective leader, being used by God to help deliver her people. And then we're gonna take a look at a gal by the name of Ruth, and you know, you know I had to include Ruth in the series because I wouldn't want the series to be ruthless. <laughs> I didn't want that to happen. Ruth was a devoted follower, or a devoted daughter-in-law who stood by her mother-in-law uh, when it would have been more convenient for her to return to her own family. And in so doing, she actually sealed her place in not only the lineage of David, but also the lineage of Christ. And then we're gonna wrap it up with one of my favorite characters, the Apostle Peter. He was that steadfast rock who was given the keys to the kingdom, despite his fair share of mess-ups and missteps. And they were all just ordinary people who allowed an extraordinary God to lead their lives, often putting his priorities ahead of their own 
and choosing to serve God's greater purpose. Now, there's really two key verses that I want to be the foundation of this series and why we're actually doing it. The first one is Romans chapter 15, where it says, for everything that was written in the past, what Paul's talking about there is the Bible. The reason God preserved the Bible for us was written to teach us so that the, through the endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we could have some hope. We can look at other people and to be able to learn from their example. And then the second verse is in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. And it's a great verse. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, it's almost this word picture like up in heaven, these people who've gone before, they're down there looking at us, cheering us on. They're in our balcony because they want us to make it too. And because of that, we're encouraged to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance. It's going to take perseverance. The race that marked out for us and it's going to look different than anybody else's race. And so what we want to come away from this study are our principles and values demonstrated rather than specific details. And the first principle where we're starting with Esther is the principle of courage. So holy, holy hero number one is courageous queen Esther. Now, when it comes to the quality of courage, have you noticed it's a lot easier to have courage for someone else than it is to have courage for yourself? It's kind of like the two boys who walked into a dentist's office one day, and obviously the bravest one said to the dentist, he said, dentist, I want a tooth taken out, and it needs to be taken out right now, and I don't want any gas, and I don't want any deadening, because we're in a hurry and the dentist said, wow, you're a brave young man. Which tooth is it? And that's when the supposedly brave young man turned to his smaller friend and said, Tommy, show him your tooth. <laughs> he can do all that if it's not his courage. And you know, of course, the difference between a major surgery and a minor surgery, right? Uh, a minor surgery is when uh, it's on someone else. A major surgery is when it's on you because it takes more courage there. Well, this morning, I'm only going to provide some of the highlights of Esther's story because I actually hope uh, that this next week you'll take some time to read the book of Esther for yourself. It's a short book. It only has 10 chapters, and the last chapter only has three verses, so it's really almost only nine chapters. And the Old Testament story of Esther is one of courage and bravery and faith. And it begins when the Jewish nation was living as exiles in the Persian Empire, which was ruled by a king named Xerxes. And uh, I just want to say, man, if there are any parents that are looking for a cool and unordinary name, you might want to take a note because I haven't heard or seen that one lately and it's got two X's in it. That's kind of cool. <laughs> the story begins with Xerxes providing this lavish banquet for his people, uh, the people of his empire. And during the celebration, honestly, after he had a little bit too much wine himself, he ordered his wife Vashti to appear before him so he could kind of show her off as a trophy bride to his guests. Well, Queen Vasti responded with a hard no and did not comply to the king's orders, which led to her being deposed as queen and banished from the kingdom. I think she was lucky to get out of there alive. But that left a vacancy for the position of queen. And that's when young Esther, a Jewish orphan who was living with her cousin Mordecai, was among those who was selected to audition for the role. 
Well, we discover that Esther captured the favor of the king because she was young and she was beautiful and he chose her to be his queen. But because her cousin Mordecai had instructed her to keep quiet about her nationality, Esther did not reveal her Jewish heritage. Well, meanwhile, the king had an advisor named Haman who became enraged at Mordecai when Mordecai refused to bow down to him when he entered the city. And unfortunately, Haman was a ruthless man and decided to get revenge not only on Mordecai, but on every Jew in the Persian Empire by plotting their extermination. And so Haman convinced the king to issue a decree that really would allow for the mass genocide of the Jewish people. And so obviously, when Esther and Mordecai heard of the king's decision, they were horrified. And that's when Mordecai urged Esther to reveal her Jewish identity to the king and plead for the safety of her own people. But Esther, of course, she resisted because she knew that anyone who approached the king without having been summoned could be executed on the spot. And that's when Mordecai reminded Esther that the position that she had been given as queen could have possibly been for this very specific purpose and that she should at least try to leverage that relationship so hopefully she could save her fellow Jews. Well, obviously, this was a very pivotal and potentially fatal moment for Esther. And I think that sometimes when we read the Bible story from the outside, I think we miss some of the true tension here because we can't even begin to comprehend the true gravity of the situation. And that's what, that's what I love about what movies do for us. I mean, great movies set you up so that you're able to feel the tension and the danger in the moment. I think one of the best examples of this for a movie has to be the movie Jurassic Park. Anybody here seen the movie Jurassic Park? I mean, when you're sitting there, you're so nervous for them because you could they're going to get eaten by the dinosaur. It's intense. And I got to be honest with what I'm about to share with you is probably going to lead you to believe that Diane and I were terrible parents because when our two older kids were barely school age, we let them watch the movie Jurassic Park. But even worse than that, we, we also let our youngest son, Brandon, watch it too. I don't know if that's a good idea. I think it really scared and maybe even scarred him because at the time he was potty training You're seeing where this is going. Because unfortunately, we had purchased a cool dinosaur potty chair like the one you see that he would not go near after watching that movie because he saw what happened to the guy in the outhouse. And I just talked to him last night and he said, Dad, I think it actually helped speed up the potty training process because I wanted to get past that. Well, honestly, I wish we could read this story with that type of intensity, because folks, this was serious. And so let's jump in in Esther chapter four, verses nine through 16. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. And then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces, they know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned to the king has but one law that they be put to death. 
unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. I mean, we need some suspenseful music here, right? But 30 days have passed since the time I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were repeated to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you're in the king's house that you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, who knows that, but that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this. And then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and you fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Wow. So what is it that we can learn from Esther's story? Folks, I think Esther teaches us about the power of courage and faith in the face of adversity. I mean, Esther's response was, hey, if, if I perish, I perish. And you know, when I read that, I just think to myself, I think Esther possessed way more courage than I think I've ever had. That's because she was willing to kind of lay it all on the line. I mean, think about her story. Esther began as a nobody. She became a somebody and chose to risk her life to save everybody. And I think you, if you ask anyone who's ever displayed a significant amount of courage, they'll likely confess that they were really, in that moment, very much afraid. But it is courage that gives you the chutzpah to do what you're afraid of doing. Eddie Rickenbacker was an American fighter pilot in World War I and a Medal of Honor recipient. And here's, here's what he said. He said, courage is doing what you're actually afraid to do. There can be no courage unless you're scared. And then there's that great theologian, John Wayne. You know John Wayne? <laughs> I love what he said. He said, courage is being scared to death, but saddling up anyway. And actually, there is a Swiss theologian named Karl Barth, who I think said it best. He said, courage is actually fear that has said its prayers. Now, what's obvious is that courage, folks, is not the absence of fear. It's not the absence of fear, but rather the determination to take action in spite of it. And folks, that's why the story of Queen Esther is such an inspiration. I mean, she faced adversity from the time she was orphaned through her reign as queen. And when the stakes were at their highest, she stood strong, uh, even when doing so presented the real possibility of death. And her decision to bravely approach the king to save her people, the Jews, literally changed the course of history and played an important role in advancing the kingdom of God. It's because I think she appropriately heard those words. And who knows, but do you have come to your royal position for such a time as this? And when I hear that, you know, I think what many people are missing in their lives today is a sense of destiny. Like, you know what, I'm, I'm here for a purpose. 
Too many people don't understand that they're not, they're not here by chance, but rather by divine design. Now, the hard part about that is, uh, if you take any look at the headline news today, it can kind of elicit an overwhelming flood of anxiety and discouragement that can be a little bit hard to shake. Add to that the concerns about your children and finances and safety and careers, and we're kind of left wondering how to find the courage to lead in our homes and in our communities and at our workplaces when it feels a little bit like everything is falling apart. And folks, that's why rather than turning to, you know, Netflix binging like a lot of people do um, or some other means of escape, I would suggest that we learn to dive into the pages of Scripture because that's where you find the encouragement of the stories of God's people who bravely stepped into their callings even when the circumstances were dire. So what can we learn from Esther's example as maybe we face our own challenges today? Well, I think, I think it starts with a question for every one of us. And the question would be, are you ready? Are you ready for a Mordecai moment in your life? You see, one of the central truths of the Bible is that when life is difficult and the world is filled with struggles and hardship and pain, that's exactly when God calls his people to do something and it's something that will almost always require courage. And yet courage is one of those things that you don't likely know you have until you have an opportunity to express it. And courageous thoughts always precede courageous actions. And so let me give you a courageous thought from Francis Chan. I think he says a lot of things really well. He, he, he reminds me, he says, you know, God doesn't call us to be comfortable he calls us to trust him so completely that we are unafraid to put ourselves in situations where we'll be in trouble if he doesn't come through. That's, that's where Esther was living. And so I want to ask you another question today. What danger, what threat, or what risk might be keeping you from your destiny? And I got to confess, man, I need more courage. I, I don't think I have enough courage because when, when I'm, honestly, when I'm out in the world, I, I'm often too timid or maybe too intimidated or sometimes even fearful to stand out for Christ. Now, you might say, well, that's weird. You stand up in front of people and talk about Jesus every week. But I, I feel pretty confident speaking about the grace and truth of God when I'm here because I'm not that concerned that I'm going to be bullied here. You all came on your own free accord. And I honestly think, folks, some of you are far more courageous about sharing your faith than I am. But if we're ever going to have an impact on this world, we've got to have some courage. I think Winston Churchill said it the best. He said, courage is the finest of human qualities. Why? Because it guarantees all of the rest. Have courage if you're going to do what's right. See, doing the right thing often requires courage courage. And as Christ followers, we know that to be true. Because the apostle Paul said, hey, if you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you're going to experience some danger, some risk. You will be persecuted. And so what is doing the right thing for us today? Folks, it's not 
compromising biblical truth while continuing to love people. We got to have both of those. Don't compromise the truth, but continue to love people. So let me just say, I believe living out your faith in this world is going to require courage. You're going to have to have courage. In fact, I, I believe that in these next few decades, the ones that are in front of us, God's people are going to need more courage than they've needed in the last century. Or we're going to become irrelevant if we don't have some courage. And that's one of the reasons I was so encouraged the other day when I received a text from one of our young adults. It's one of the young people in our church, a gal by the name of Emily Hagopian. And here's what she texted me. She said, Austin, that's her boyfriend, Austin and I both have a massive desire to reach the lost. Our goal is to encourage people to get to know Jesus by being loving examples to them. We are hoping we could reach a lot of lost people at the pride festivals coming up and get them curious about Jesus. I said, how do you intend to do that? She said, well, I got maybe three main ways in mind. Number one, by inviting them to ask questions. We've thought about setting up a booth that says, we love Jesus, ask us anything. She said, number two, through personal testimony so that they can see that Jesus is real and that we have stories to prove it. And number three, by responding to the backlash with unwavering love, even if things start getting hostile. I can almost guarantee you they will. She says, our main goal is to encourage honest, loving discussions by inviting them in rather than just preaching at them as they walk by and roll their eyes, and they will. Of course, of course, they're gonna have a ton of questions and probably a ton of counterpoints to our discussion and to the gospel, and that's why we feel like we need to learn some more so that we can defend God's word as we are sharing it and being an example of it. That's some young people in our church. And it made me think, I want to ask myself, I want to ask all of us here, what's one step that you could take today that would foster more courage in your faith? It could be simply enough just saying, hey, you know what? I'm going to be an everyday missionary. And when the opportunity arises for me to speak up in order to point someone in God's direction, I'll do it. Because you know what? Here's what I know. The gospel is what turns people who are nobodies into somebodies whom God has used and can use to change the world. And I think he's looking for a few more. Let's pray. Father, thank you for preserving the story of Esther for us. Thank you for the courage that she had to step into the moment that you had created and made for her. Save the life of so many in her, in her nation. Father, we're not going to face situations exactly like that, but every one of us in this room, if we want to 
stand up for your son Jesus are going to have to be willing to step in when it's going to take some courage. And so I pray, Father, that you would give us a, a generation like Emily and Austin with that kind of courage and that all of us at whatever age we are could have the courage to step up and step in because you're the God who can do what you did for Esther for us and use our lives in a significant way if we'll just learn to surrender to you because that's what you do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.